0: Sunday with Miriam on RTE Radio 1 Sponsored by Super value Insurance Driving value that matters on car, home and travel insurance Now that's sound
1: Well first this morning, six years ago comedian Al Porter was at the top of his game. He was still only in his twenties but he'd reached a very wide audience with radio, TV stand-up and panto. He was the youngest headliner at Vicar Street at only 21 years of age and he sold out the Apollo in London. But then it all came to an abrupt halt when he was initially accused of inappropriate sexual behaviour and then he faced a charge of sexual assault. He resigned his post as a radio presenter with Today FM and as presenter of Blind Date on TV3, and he stepped back from the Olympia Panto. Well, two years later, in November 2019, charges against him were dropped. He denied any wrongdoing in the case. Separately, an independent investigation into an allegation by a patient in St Patrick's found that Al Porter had uninvitedly kissed the complainant on the cheek in a pose for a photograph. Well, six years on, Al Porter is back on stage and back on tour. He's just back from Edinburgh where he got a Spirit of the Fringe Award and he's going on a tour all over Ireland from October the 20th and he's here with me in studio, Al Porter. Good morning to you.
0: Good morning, Miriam. How are you?
1: So well. Thanks so much for being here. Listen, can we talk first, Al, about that time you were young, no, That's not an excuse. You were drinking, you were taking drugs again, not an excuse. So what explains how you behave towards other people, do you think?
0: Well, when I look back on that time in my life, I was deeply immature, hugely immature. And because it's been six years and you're looking back on your late teens and your early 20s with the perspective of a 30 year old and with a perspective of somebody who's come under a lot of very public criticism, uh, I'm able to look at that time and say, you know, I was arrogant. I was very insensitive. I think I was inconsiderate in the truest sense of the word, in the sense that I literally did not take into consideration uh, the people around me. And I think I was naive and under this illusion in my own head that I'm great and I'm so funny and everybody thinks I'm funny and everybody understands where I'm coming from and that's not necessarily the case and there was a major wake up call then in November 2017 when people came out and said well no, you're not so great and you're not so funny and you need to do better and on reflection when I look at that at the time in November 2017 you're I was 24 and totally unprepared for that and unprepared for that wake up call and and overwhelmed by it. So I didn't really respond how I would now. Uh, but now I can look back and say people expected better of me at that time in my life and they had every every right to expect better of me. I wish I had done things differently and I wish I had been a better colleague, a better friend. I wish that I had been just an all-round better person. And I think that it's no one factor that caused everything to fall apart as it did. Um, It's a combination of factors. As you say, you know, you can't blame youth or you can't blame fame or money or, or drink or anything else. Those are contributing factors to one big ego, one massive self-centred ego that was at the heart of all of that back then. And uh, I suppose that's that's where I've tried to emphasise over time that I blame myself. And, you know, that's you don't blame something, as you say, you blame yourself. And you go, I'm at the heart of this. And ultimately, the book stops with me. I'm responsible to my past. Uh, I'm also responsible to my, my present and my future. And I, I was the reason that everything fell apart. I mean, it's, it's not easy listening, obviously, when, when you hear, you describe how well things were going and then you hear the things that people said and it, it's uncomfortable, but that's my responsibility. I have to live with that discomfort. I do live with that discomfort every day and I have to live with that reality.
1: And when you now, you're still only 30, but when you look back on your younger self, how would you describe your younger self?
0: I think I was, I kind of felt like I'd been shot out of a cannonball out of of school. And in school I had been uh, a bit of a swath. And um, I I was in school in Tallinn, I was very focused on my grades and going to college and I didn't drink and I had yet to come out. And then suddenly when I dropped out of college within a couple of weeks, I was a comedian and I was, you know, 19 years old and I'd come out of the closet and I discovered alcohol. And it's not until years later that I could look back and go, well, actually, my use of alcohol was a serious misuse of alcohol and a chronic abuse of alcohol. And uh, at the time, it was a runaway train. And uh, in a way, you said, how would you describe yourself? But a bit of a runaway train, a bit of a bull in a china shop, excitedly going after the next gig and the next party and burning the candle at both ends. And and I think the the most obvious flaw and one of the most central flaws is very unself-aware, very unself-aware. I thought I had it all figured out. and uh, and I didn't. I didn't I didn't have my my stuff together. I wasn't I was actually much more all over the place than I thought I was. And unfortunately, because of that, I let a lot of people down. You know i I let down the people that I was working with. I let down my friends, my family, I let down the people that were supporting me and coming to my shows, who now I'm kind of in the process of trying to regain people's trust and try to say, well, I've learned a lot of lessons and I've taken everything that was said on board. And uh, over the last six years, I've been on a process of trying to change as a person and grow up. I think I would have grown up anyway between 24 to 30 but to really grow up and make necessary change and and in a way one thing that I say to people is part of that change and evolution, it deepens over time and it deepens and and I say things now I wouldn't have said two years ago when I wrote an article about this or I wouldn't have said it two years before that when I was in the thick of it um, so your your evolution as a person deepens and and changes over time. But even that one weekend in November 2017, there was an instant change because to go back to your question of how would you describe yourself? I think ignorant is a good word. You know, I was blinkered in that one weekend was the end of ignorance. It was like a snap to reality. Because the minute I read those headlines and I heard what people had to say about me, I went, oh, okay, I'm not necessarily who I think I am. And I'm definitely not being uh, spoken about here the way I would want to be spoken about. And career wasn't the first thing in my head. And that's why it was very easy to walk away from the radio, the TV, the newspapers. Heartbreaking to leave all of your work that you love doing. But also... A quick decision to make because the most important thing was how can I now, now that there is this snap to reality, how can I do better? And how can I make sure nobody ever talks about me like that again?
1: And as I said earlier, charges were dropped and you have apologised to people you hurt back then. But you don't present yourself in any way as the victim here. Sure you don't.
0: Well, there's no, there's no. Cause for self-pity, and there's no self-pity in the show. I don't pity myself. Uh I realized very early on that you know pity is due not when you're the idiot at the center of it all. You're the you're the stupid person, you're the person uh who caused everything to fall apart. And self-pity is a bottomless pit that there is no getting yourself out of. It's, you know, self-responsibility was the only thing. And, you know, it's not unconscious even as you say it there that it, it, it sounds like, well, OK, that's the past and water under the bridge and, you know, you've made amends with people and, you know, not everybody. And it's not perfect. And it is something that I'm trying to, work on over time and some people I wrote letters to, some people didn't want them, some people did. Um, There are people who you speak to in person, that's often easier and more successful. And then there are some people who you say, I'm not going to make contact with you because there's nothing I can say that I think is going to improve the situation. And you have to live with that because there's no closure there for either person or resolution but I hope in those scenarios that how I live my life now and how I live it until the end is is a response.
1: And obviously, we both agree drinking drugs is an excuse. But how much of an impact did drinking drugs have on your life back then?
0: I don't think I realised until I was out the other side that you know I, I haven't drank in. It's coming up on three years now, and. Uh, that was a challenge because, you know, it had become such a a central feature of my life without me even realising it. And again, you are the person who chooses to drink and you are the person who chooses to get, you know, blotto and stay out until five in the morning. And uh, so the book stops with me. But certainly if alcohol hadn't been in my life, I think I would be living a much less complicated life. And I think that I would have been able to live up to a self that I could have been prouder of, you know. I'm I'm disappointed by my younger self, but I didn't realise it was all, this is meant to be fun and party, party. And, and it's not, it's unprofessional.
1: And didn't Gay Byrne offer you some advice about drinking?
0: Yeah. Well, Gay came to my show in Vicar Street and at that time I was drinking on stage and the audience was chanting, you know, more, more, more. And I downed one pint and then the next pint was put up and people were bringing up drink. And Gay said after the show, I think you're going to need to look at that. And I do think he had foresight there. Mm -hmm. He'd been around long enough that it was almost a prophetic statement because he knew Mm -hmm. uh, Nobody who is drinking, as I say again, with that much, with that little awareness, I think Gay could tell this isn't an intentional part of your act. You don't have control over this. You don't have a handle on it. Um, and it was it was true. I, I, I've I, done for six years now cognitive behavioural therapy with a great therapist. And that was His recommendation was, you know, right, is it time we look at the drink? We've talked about a lot of other things. It's time to remove this crutch from your life and this thing that has been such a negative impact on your family and friends. And now I have a better relationship with my family, a better relationship with my friends and uh, life is the better for it. And And again, I have the little voice on my shoulder that says, you know, to anybody who met me, when I was 19, 2021, 20, you know, you know, and, and if they met me and they think, well, you were a total, there's not really a, a word I can use. It's Sunday morning. But uh, as an American would say, a-hole or when, mm. when I met you back then, you know, it's small consolation to them to hear me on Sunday with Miriam saying, oh, well, I'm sober three years and I'm, you know, I'm very professional now. And, you know, I understand that person is listening going, well, you weren't when I met you and I still don't like you and I understand that and I'm very conscious of that.
1: When it all came crashing down, you were as you say, only 24, 2017, after all the allegations. How did you deal with that? How bad did it get for you? It was it was such a a kind of
0: a shock and and it shouldn't have been. (laughs) you know in a way it shouldn't have been because obviously other people around me were going yeah to some extent something the wheels were going to come off the tracks here something was going to you know something's got to give because they could see that i wasn't holding it together it was it was a straw you know mm. but for me for the 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 idiot the young person at the center of it uh it was such a shock and so overwhelming that I was just, I was numb to it for, for years. I mean, that's where the, the drink became even more and, and the Xanax and the Valium and anything you can do to numb yourself from it. And I kind of lived a bit of a non-life for years. It was a, a purgatory, you know, as I say, a purgatory of my own making. If, if I had been able to confront it honestly and, and authentically, straight away that purgatory might have been unnecessary but that that non-existence of just being in your mum's house and and being in bed with the curtains drawn and unable to leave the bedroom and unable to leave uh the house and with the the incredibly dark thoughts and 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 the kind of repeated ideation that it would be better if I wasn't here. It would be better for my family. It would be better for my boyfriend. I've brought this horribleness onto them, and you know the the living with that for for years. Um, it mightn't have been necessary if I had the maturity or the perspective to deal with it, but I didn't, and. Uh, and again, you know, in the show, I kind of talk about the elephant in the room, but in a funny way. And I kind of paint myself as this pathetic loser at the center of it all, who's you know gaining a huge amount of weight at a rapid rate and downing the bottle of vodka. And is you're the you're the butt of the joke, and you're the one that you're you're making fun and was of. Was that but,
1: all true? But
0: in reality, that's yeah. all true, and that's the mm-hmm. thing. You know, in in the show, you're able to separate it and use. You know, comedy is, by necessity, facetious. By necessity, you have to make light of the serious and and exaggerate and embellish. But at the heart of it, it was an incredibly dark time. And there there are other ways in which it was dark as well. My, my partner's parents both had cancer um, at the exact same time. You know, we were very worried about them. We were caring for them at home. Uh, Covid happened as well. Uh, So there was this prolonged period where it seemed, you know, life is incredibly bleak and dark. Um, Again, I accept it as a consequence of, as a consequence of that time in my life where I think you play stupid games, you win stupid prizes is the flippant way of saying it. But That was a part of the of the consequence of the whole thing.
1: And how, I mean, how low did you get? Did you honestly, seriously think that the world would be better off without you in it?
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I remember when when that became something that I thought every day and often, that was when I went to the uh, psychiatric hospital to meet a, a psychiatrist and to talk about that. Because no matter if there was never going to be a career on stage again or there was never going to be, uh, you know, if even if nobody ever said a good word about me ever again, I still had to sort out, well, this isn't right to be thinking I would much rather not be here. And I did, uh, you know, I considered it very seriously, you know, and. Obviously, the, the the funny reason that I I give in in the show every now and then is one thought crossed my mind that I wouldn't have a suit to be buried in because I'd gained so much weight. I was a really quite big. I was LGBTQ plus, and I say I was the plus. But I thought I better lose weight if I'm going to take my own life because I don't. They won't have a suit to bury me in, or I don't want my uh, my mam to have to deal with that, or to you know. And 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 this is a mad a mad thought to be thinking. I was out jogging and my neighbours were saying, oh, you're getting in shape. You must be going back on TV. And I was thinking, no, I'm killing myself. (laughs) It's the exact opposite. Now, there are lots of jokes in the show about that that are funnier and funny. But the reality of it obviously isn't funny. And the reality of it is that that was a a rock bottom. That was my kind of lowest moment. But then you realise, you know, that there is, there is a future. There is, a, there is a next day. There is, that's why I called my show now because I had the, the realisation with help of the psychiatrist and with help from the cognitive behaviour and with my family and friends, but the realisation that, you know, okay Al, you have a past and you might feel the ripple effects of that past forever and you won't be able to move on from the past. You'll have to move on with it. And you're going to have to take it with you and it'll be there and you'll have to talk about it. But there is a present. There is a now where you can say, who am I today? You know, can I be better today? What can I do to be better today? And when you know better, you do better. And that's why I called the show now, because the show is a funny, life affirming show that says, you know, no matter how badly you've effed up your life, no matter how much you've messed up, no matter how badly it's gone. There's always a new day. There's always a now. Uh, As opposed to what my auntie thought, if you're listening, Auntie Marie, who's 88 years old from Ballymun, who said, did you call your new show uh, now as in F the big grudgers now? (laughs) And I said, no, Marie, that's not why I called it now.
1: (laughs) And actually, we're going to take a break and after discuss your show, just before I take the break, You have a lovely, close family, I gather. How difficult do you think was it for someone like your mum to see you when you were at rock bottom? Well, it's worse. It's worse
0: for them. It's worse for your mum, your your dad, your brother, your sister. You know, if uh, many people, especially in my area, it's a tight-knit area in Tala, many people were a rock for them and very supportive but you know there were people who maybe didn't want to speak to them or you know the, the shame of it it's a shameful thing and you feel terrible for them because it's not their shame to bear it's not their burden to bear and on the one hand my mum is obviously as you're saying very worried about her son who is drinking himself into oblivion who's doing nothing with his life and who who is uh Obviously, doesn't want to be here, and on the other hand, as well, because she's a very good person, she's trying to deal with, you know, my son is not the good guy in this story, you know, my son is is the person at the heart of the story who has the lessons to learn, for my for my mom, my dad, those pe- my my boyfriend who I'm with seven years now, you know, for them it's just awful because there's nothing they can do. They can't fix it. They can't go back in time and shake you and slap you and punch you and go, what are you thinking? And, and, you know, be better than this. And they also can't drag you along to a perspective where you can start to confront your past and start to get back out there. They have to leave you to do it in your own time. And I think that must have been horrendous for them.
1: OK, Al, stay with me. We're going to take a break. Welcome back. Well, I'm here this morning speaking to comedian Al Porter, who's just home from Edinburgh and the Fringe Festival there. Listen, the reviews for your show in Edinburgh were really good. The Scotsman said, you're still a brilliant comic you were destined to be and you got a spirit of the Festival Award. Was there any pushback?
0: It was a great festival. It was uh, the reviews were great. I mean, it was good to know that people still... Uh, thought I was funny you know you have that doubt in your head the imposter syndrome when I went back gigging this year in Ireland of well are people coming back because they remember you being funny as opposed to you still being funny now but uh, I was glad that in Scotland where people didn't know me from Adam that there were good reviews and they were saying this is very funny and it is a funny show and I'm conscious that you and I aren't talking about very funny things. I had to laugh with my friend when I was on telling him I was gonna be on with you. And yeah. he said, Oh what are you gonna talk about? And what do you think we're gonna talk about? <laughs> so there is the responsibility to talk about the serious stuff. But on stage you park that and it becomes a very fun show and and maybe my best show that i 've ever done in terms of the reviews i 've never been reviewed uh better, so audiences came, people laughed, they enjoyed it. I did about a hundred gigs, so maybe twenty five or so of them would be my own show, and then I went gigging with other Irish comedians and other English comedians on different shows and uh It was just great to go back there after six years and and to and to share lineups with other comedians and Uh, That was wonderful. But you said, was the pushback? There was a little bit, you know, at times, you know, there was a handful of people on Twitter. um, But I understand that. It comes with the territory. I I expect it and I understand it. And I hope that in time, maybe I'll have proved myself uh, that that will be less over time. Um, You know, I've been gigging. Anybody who's gigged with me this year, would be able to say that they gigged with somebody who was professional and I'm hyper conscious. All eyes are on me. So I'm hyper conscious that everybody is comfortable.
1: So the audiences, I mean, the reviews were fab. What did they make of you there? Well, in
0: Ireland, people know me as camp and camp comedy, even though the new show has kind of moved on from that to kind of a more uh, mature kind of comedy that's not just the camp gay stuff but when people meet me here camp is the first thing you know and the gay thing whereas in Scotland people meet me I'm kind of Irish first and it's really strange you're talking to especially older Scottish people they hear the Irish lilt and I can tell they're looking at me hearing the da 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 as opposed to at home it's more da da And I got into a taxi in Scotland and with this voice and I said I wanted to go to a bar CC Blooms which was having a drag night so that kind of bar I said I'd like to go to CC Blooms please and the taxi driver said "Oh son you know that's a gay bar as if I was going to go oh sugar stop the car I can't (laughs) believe it oh thank God you saved my life so it is funny that Scottish people see me as an Irishman as opposed to a camp man uh but but that's nice and and you know my mum missed me while I was over there and she was whatsapp voice noting me every day and uh I don't know if anybody listening has that but nobody calls anymore i, I just get whatsapp voice note it's like a podcast that I'm involuntarily subscribed to. My mam thinks she's Vogue Williams or, you know, something like that. I mean, I get, it comes in one minute and then you get one that's five minutes and by the fifth one, she has a sponsor or she's getting a guest on. I mean, I always think, I can't believe my mam is having guests on her own voice note. I'll get a voice note saying, Al, I'm here with your Auntie Doreen. Doreen, tell Al what you were telling me earlier. I'm thinking, Doreen can ring me herself, you know. But in case anybody wants a trick with that, Put them on double speed. So if you press the little circle yeah. beside their neck, they go on to double speed. So you get a voice note that says, Hi Al, how's it going? I'm looking at the dog here and I wonder whether I should feed the dog and I wonder if I should talk to your father, which is great. But just don't forget that you've done that because I hadn't been home. I'd been up in Donegal and I hadn't been home in a few weeks and I got home and met my mam. She'd been on WhatsApp double speed and now I meet her and I'm getting a shock because she's talking to me saying, Hi Al. How are you? And I go, I think ma'am's having a stroke here, you know, <laughs> calling my dad in, called the emergency services. Ma'am, can you smell burning toast? But anyway, she was fine. But that's my, my one tip. Tell me about the Donegal Island. Oh yeah, I love it there. I, I, I'm i staying up on an island off Donegal and it's just a most beautiful place and the people are great and no, not unlike Tallot where everybody knows everybody and you feel safe around them and, uh, People think, oh, you wouldn't like it there. I love it. It's so quiet. There is a gay community there. That's one guy called Jamie. Uh, for pride, me and Jamie and my partner uh, walked up and down the beach, which was nice. We put up a rainbow flag and two of the locals thought it meant it was safe to swim. But we were very proud. <laughs> but it was, uh, it's a lovely place to be. It's a great place. That's where I used to go to the talked when I was a teenager And I wanted to move there because it was quiet and because when I'm there, people just know me as Alan from back when I used to visit as a student and and anything good or bad that happened in the interim doesn't matter to them and I like that.
1: And you're an uncle now too?
0: I'm an uncle now. My uh, brother got married to a German girl and it is great to have a German in the family, you know, because it's just nice to have another member of the family who doesn't really like to talk about the past. Um, Let's just say my family is never going to do that show, Who Do You Think You Are? But it's great to be the uncle of little Alfie, little German Alfie and they live over in Cologne and it's given my mum and dad a new lease of life And uh, I love, I love being an uncle and, you know, uh, and also in the show, we talk about things like that, about the island or about, and that's what I mean about it being a funny show. It's not stuck in the past. There's being an uncle and having the German sister-in-law, you know, and having the, the island life and it's all in there. Uh, But I also am not afraid to joke about, about the past, so long as I'm the butt of the joke. Like this weekend, I've been watching the TV with my mam, and I thought she was very supportive back then. But I have been watching the TV saying to her, Janie, mam, I don't remember you going on hunger strike. You know, I mean, Rubiales. Mrs. Rubiales has kind of taken the biscuit here. I seem to remember people visiting my mam with cakes and sandwiches and she wasn't turning them away. So Mrs. Rubiales is going, you could have done more, mum. You could have went on a hunger strike. So I have a laugh with something like that or, or, you know, So long as you're teasing
1: yourself, Mm. I think it's okay. So the Irish tour, what can Irish audiences expect? And are you more nervous or apprehensive by playing back here than somewhere like Edinburgh?
0: No, I can't wait to play back here. I mean, I can't wait. It's when I started back gigging at the start of this year, I was doing 30 35, 40 people and I would do a cafe, I did a garage, uh, like a petrol station after hours. I did, uh, you know, GAA clubs and the back rooms of halls just to try and build it back up again. And every show, every audience was fantastic. The Irish people had the best audience in the world. We want to laugh. We want you to do well. You know, in Scotland every now and then you're you're about to go on stage and say, you better be funny. You know, whereas at home we're going, oh, I can't wait to see you, Alan. We we want to have a good time. And I, I can't wait because, you know, when my manager asked me to put a Vicar Street on sale, I said, Stuart, you must be joking. No, nobody's going to go, you know. And it was sold out within a couple of days. We're just putting another one on sale and... I just can't wait to show them the show and I think people are going to really enjoy it if the previews are anything to go by. I mean I might eat my words I could be sitting here with you at Christmas going <laughs> they didn't like it Miriam and I'm moving to Australia and I'm going to become an electrician and that's the end of that. But if I do do that at least I'll have tried. I understand that people might say well you know would he not just forget about it? Move on. You had your chance. You squandered the chance. Move on. But I can't because it's my passion and I love it and when you love something like this and you love to make people laugh you have to do it whether it's to five people or five thousand so uh, you know but I hope it's more than five people and tickets are on (laughs) sale
1: Al Porter, thank you very much for being my guest today. And you can get all the details of your upcoming gigs on alporter.ie. I wish you the very best. And thanks so much for joining me this morning. Thanks for your time. And just to say, look, if anyone listening has been affected by any of the issues in my interview with Al, you can call the Samaritans on 116 123 or Pieta House on 1800 247 247. Or you can see rt.ie forward slash helplines. We'll take a break.